This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host, Craig Blumenshine. Craig, hi. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, Ashley. You know, it was just wonderful to see 50s. Are you kidding I me know, in the forecast? I know. I'm walking around without a jacket. <laughs> Oddly, I don't want to talk about weather at the top of all of these shows, but you can't <laughs> But you can't it, not right especially now. Especially this time of year. <laughs> Coming up in the second half of today's show, a fascinating conversation about how we interact with robots and what that says about what it means to be human. Mm. <laughs> I've thought about this, actually, yeah. in terms of a lot of different things, so I'm looking forward to that discussion. <laughs> We're going to lead off today's Main Street with something I teased just a moment ago on our billboard about meeting somebody on a plane and then wanting to learn more. I got to meet Soraya Nevin. She's an NDSU graduate student. She wants to get her Ph.D. in genetics. If that's not enough... She also wants to be an Olympian, a member of the United States Olympic team in shooting sports. So I caught up with her and her coach, Eric Pepke, at the Red River Regional Marksmanship Center, where she and her NDSU marksmanship teammates practice once a week. She's just fascinating, and her coach is a national-level coach. Soraya, welcome to Main Street. Hi. It's really good to see you again. Eric, it's great to see you and it's good to meet you. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Main Street. Soraya, you and I met on an airplane when we, we were deplaning in Denver and you told me you were on your way to some pre-Olympic competition in shooting. We talked a little more about it and, and here we are today. You grew up in Michigan. I did. I grew up in uh, Holt, Michigan, uh, which is just by Michigan State University. So you became interested in shooting, you told me, at a rather late age compared to many of the people you are now competing against. Yes, I started in high school as a junior and most other people started at a much younger age in 4-H from just like childhood. But I started as a junior at the local range. And what prompted you to want to start shooting? I had goals at the time to join the military and I felt like it would be a good idea to know if I was could shoot or not. And so I was like, I'll take a pistol class at the local range. I actually want to take a rifle class. Well, when's the pistol class? And it's Sunday night. So I was like, I'll just try that. And it was air pistol class that met weekly. And I was like, I'll try it. And I tried it and I thought it was a lot of fun. So I would shoot every week. And then a couple months in, uh, they had their first match at the range. Turns out that that was the Olympic or the Junior Olympic qualifying match. I found out that I had qualified and then a few months later went out to Colorado Springs to the Olympic Training Center and competed for the first time at the JOs. You are currently a graduate student in biomedical engineering here at yes. NDSU. I think the reason you came here is fascinating because you are a great student. You're going to pursue a PhD in genetics, I think you told me? Yes. Yet you came here to shoot. Why? Because while I was in high school and competing at the national level, I met Eric. It seemed like it'd be a really good fit here for shooting, and I came out here after the second time I went to the Junior Olympics. I flew back with Eric to check out NDSU and meet the team, and it felt like home away from home. Eric, you shot here when you were in college. I did. I did. Tell me about that history. Well, every North Dakota farm boy grows up shooting. And uh, when I went to NDSU, they actually had shooting programs for FIADs. And I physical education. For physical education. I, the first one I took was rifle. I was very good at it. They wanted me on the rifle team. And it just didn't excite me that much. The next time around, I took pistol. And I wasn't really good at that. But the challenge was there. And the rest is history, I guess. Did you continue to compete then? Yeah, so I, I continued to compete. I found a pistol club here in Fargo called Gateway Pistol Club and I started uh, competing with them and uh, I competed for about 35, 36 years. You know, had some days in the sun, I had state records, I'm, they put me in the North Dakota Shooting Sport Hall of Fame, things like that, you know. And then at some point I decided to start giving back. So about 2004 or 5, I kind of quit competing and started coaching and doing this coach training type stuff for USA Shooting and NRA. And that's about the time I got involved with USA Shooting. What does it mean to be a club sport in shooting in, I guess, the country? Are there many universities that have this? You work on a shoestring budget, I'm guessing? It varies. There's, on the pistol side, there is just club sports around the United States. I want to say there's probably 
22, 23 schools around the United States that have pistol programs. On the rifle side, there's many more. There's probably 70 or more. Um, I know some schools, like Ohio State is an example. They're going to shoot with us here shortly. Um, they have kids that come on a six-figure scholarship, just like one would come for a football or basketball scholarship. Soraya, how have you done competitively at this level? Uh, competitively, uh, I have done done okay. I've made Tell the... me what okay is. <laughs> So we have, it's called All-American. Other sports have it too. It's for academic excellence and performance in your sport. And so I was the first sport pistol. I made that team. Yeah. And what is sport pistol? So sport pistol has two courses of fire. You have slow fire and rapid fire. Slow fire, fire is, they're both 30 shots each. It's five shots in five minutes. And you got a one minute load period before that. And then usually you'll have a little break in between and then you'll shoot rapid fire, which is a little bit more complicated and you have to have either turning targets or a light system. And so the target, you'll get the command attention, which you'll go down to a 45 degree angle or lower with your arm and obviously the pistol. And then the light will turn green or the target will face you and you have three seconds to shoot. And then the target will edge again and you have to wait seven seconds before you can shoot again and it'll face for three seconds. How far are you away from the target? 25 meters. Is there also a 10 meter competition? That's air pistol. Okay. So I also shoot that. The last like year or so I've tried to focus more on sport pistol because I don't have that much time to practice anymore. In high school I practiced every day after school for two hours at least and now in college I just don't have that time and it's really hard to get good at something if you only practice it once a week. So Soraya, how do you balance that then? You probably want to be great, you probably want to be the best, but you also have other goals now with your academics. Yeah, so it's definitely a challenge and so over the last year I've started to focus more on sport pistol because I think that I have more potential in sport pistol than air pistol and I've seen a significant difference in my performance since I've been doing that. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge to balance it with school. Eric, you also coach coaches around the country. Tell me about that. I started in uh, 2005 training coaches. I'll do coach schools, certify uh, coaches in international style shooting. I actually wrote the fundamental chapter in this course, uh, so uh, they get it right from the horse's mouth, but uh, there's two parts for it. One is the technical side, how to actually shoot, and then the other side is how to be a coach. To be a really good coach, you have to develop a rapport with a shooter. They have to respect you, you have to respect them, you have to have that relationship, or they'll never listen to you, you know, they'll never, just won't be productive, so. And I've done that all over the United States. Soraya, what are your goals with the sport? Yeah, I have goals to make the national team and one day compete at the Olympics. How close are you? in your mind to being able to do that and is there a time frame? In other words, are shooters generally your age or are they older? So there's not really a time frame. There are shooters at the collegiate level that have competed in the Olympics already. There are athletes that are also a little bit older and also a little bit older than that. There's no limit. The sport is mostly mental. The only thing that I think is really kind of the limiting factor is if your eyesight starts to go. Even with correction? If you just need a correction, that's fine, but some people can't like focus their eyes for long periods of time. So if they're, and when you get older, that also, your ability to focus now will deteriorate when you're older. And so you might not be able to focus on the sites um, well enough. You talk about the mental aspects of being a shooter. And I want to ask you both this mm -hmm. question. Okay. <clears throat> What's the difference between a really, really good shooter and a world-class shooter? Commitment and passion. So, well, there are people who are just innately good at shooting, but to be really good, you have to be really dedicated and just show up and, and want to learn and want to do better and not get stuck in your ways and just like listen to what people tell you because you don't know everything and you can't see yourself when you're shooting and so you really do need someone else to help you. Coach? Typically, people that are good shooters are also very good students because you have to learn to develop this process and you have to settle yourself down and be able to perform it. And those same qualities transfer to schooling, they transfer to your life. What really separates, I say, a real champion from an average shooter the champion has the right attitude and they have that drive in their heart. I've had the privilege of working with many of our Olympic team and they're the kind of people that the cup is always half full versus the cup is always half empty. And that is transposed over the years to I look like people that have the desire in their heart like, like Soraya does to do it. 
Sarai, when you and I first met, we were deep planning in Denver at, at DIA. It just struck me that here you are on your way to compete to ultimately become an Olympian by yourself. No entourage, not with the whole team. It was just you. And that, that just really struck me as to the commitment it must take. How does it feel to have the bar set that high when you're going to a competition like that? I have the, my goals set really high because I think that I can do it and I want to go and compete even if my team can't come with me because like the, we would love, like the whole team would love to go to all the competitions everywhere, but we don't have the funding here to go to all of these competitions. Luckily my parents are very supportive and they help me to go to all these competitions even if the, like, the team can't go. Um, I make the effort to go and because I am also a good student missing a few days of class doesn't really matter all my professors are like cool see you next week when I was a freshman and I went to winter air gun I wanted to take my final two weeks early to go to this competition they're like okay because I was I wasn't like I'll take it in a week after I get back I was like I'll take it two weeks early because I wanted to leave and go to this competition so when we met in Denver I so I flew from here and my dad flew from Detroit so he met me at uh, Denver and then we drove down together put me in your shoes the morning of and just before the competition what do you do Soraya to prepare to shoot I try to stay pretty relaxed throughout the day and not like when I came I had a lot of schoolwork to get done because it was like it was dead week and so I was trying to kind of put school aside and stay relaxed and so I got up um, my dad made me breakfast and then we went to the range a little bit early before the competition to kind of relax and just not have to worry about like being late or anything like that. There might be more than one relay and so a relay could be ahead of schedule or behind schedule. It's usually behind schedule, but it's better to show up early than to be in a rush. Are you at the point where you're starting to see the same competitors across the country? Yes. So even What's your relationship like with those people that have common goals with you? but they are competitors. Shooting sports is very different than other sports. There's no really animosity towards one another. The competition when you're shooting is really against yourself. You're trying to do better than you did last time. It's not really against the other people even. Like, they might be standing next to you, but the competition is really with yourself. I could tell you lots of stories about competitor shooting and somebody had trouble, and the people you're shooting against are digging in stuff, borrowing a gun, trying to help you out. Coaches from other teams are trying to help you out, and then you may end up, you know, getting back going and end up, you know, winning the match. But that is what I really love about shooting. You never see a football coach run to the other side of the field to help the opposing, but you see that all the time in this sport. Eric can't always go with me to my competitions, but stuff breaks, and so I've had random people helping me wow. fix my equipment yep. because I sometimes don't know how to fix it. Really enjoying our conversation with Eric Pepke. He's an assistant national pistol coach for USA Shooting and also with Soraya Nevin. She's a graduate student at NDSU and also on NDSU's club shooting team and also has higher goals, which may include the Olympics. Tell me about the gun you shoot. For air pistol, I shoot a Wolther, and so it has a carbon fiber barrel and it has an air cylinder on the bottom, so it looks kind of futuristic, if you ask kind of most people. Mm -hmm. It has a wooden grip that's been molded to my hand by Eric's son, who is also a shooter, very good shooter too, <laughs> um, in both rifle and pistol. You'll see kind of that custom molded grip to my hand and then kind of that shiny silver, and so that's for air pistol. And then for sport pistol, I shoot a Pardini SP. It's a 22. Okay. So you'll see a similar wooden grip that's been molded to my hand. The difference with that is the sport pistol is a lot thicker than the air pistol. Can I ask how expensive were those guns at your level? Yeah, so the guns that I shoot at my level are what most people shoot at like the Olympic level. Mm -hmm. um, so the sport pistol was $2,200. And then I think the air pistol was I think 1800 And that was bought through a program that um, Eric and his wife Shar do. And so they, they buy it and then you kind of pay in, in installments to kind of help shooters uh, get into the sport. All the serious guns used in this sport are European guns. Mm. So the Walther was made in Ulm, Germany, and the Pardini is actually made by the Pardini family in Italy. 
much. Like when I was in China, I was asking the other teams like how much they practice, and they're like, we practice three hours every day. Does that right. scare you in a way? I don't think it intimidates me. I I wish I had that kind of time. Like if who knows how good I could be if I had that kind of time to practice for three hours every day. You know, and that being said, even as we here at NDSU compete with other schools, we only have one night a week to practice. I will have the kids come out in my farm. I have some ranges out there so they can train there a little bit, but some of the other schools have way more training time. That being said, we do good quality work here and we've won national championships and stuff even though we have a little budget and, and less training time. If I could ask you right now what you most want to improve, would you have an answer for me? My biggest problem when it comes to shooting is actually my mental game. Because like I said, the mental aspect of shooting is the biggest part and that's the biggest part I struggle with. <laughs> like I can shoot really well, but my mind gets in the way. Do you have access to tools, Soraya, to help yourself improve your mental, mental aspect of your game? Eric helps me with it and I, um, there's been some books. There's a book by Lainey Basham. Right. I think it's right. called With Winning With Winning in Mind. mind. With winning in mind. Um, yep. And yep. so that was a book that's helpful, but yeah. it's reading and learning some of the techniques are sometimes easier than actually using them. The mental side of it is at her level, it's truly probably 90 plus percent is mental. How do you analyze your performance after a competition? You know a score. Right. I assume you have this value that's assigned to how you did, but it's so much more than that, probably. I have a journal, and so I will actually take notes while I'm shooting. So you can call your shot if you've actually been paying attention. If you do your process and pay attention to where your sights are and continue to watch the sights after you've pulled the trigger, you should have a fairly good idea of where it's going. If you're looking through the sights and you pull the trigger, and after you pull the trigger, you're like, you felt that you jerked your finger a little bit, you're like, okay, and since I'm a left-hand shooter, shooter, if I jerk it, it's probably going low right. Based on how much, like what I see my sights move and what I felt my hand do, I can be like, okay, that was probably an eight low right. So when I am taking notes while I'm shooting, I'm like, okay, that shot, I did not call it. Like I was not paying attention, and those are the shots that you really shouldn't take. If you're really not focused on your sights and really, following your process, you probably should put it down. At your level, at 25 meters, a bad shot is a half inch to the right or left? It depends what you, but yeah, it can just be a little bit or it can, can be out an inch or two. But, but basically, when she's right on, she's shooting a group that's at, at 25 meters that's probably three and a half inches in diameter. And, and of course, you understand you're shooting with one hand and all of this stuff. Did you choose to shoot left-handed because of the strength of your right eye? Did that come into play? When I was in high school, I played volleyball, like I mentioned earlier, and so I injured my shoulder pretty bad. I am left eye dominant, but it was mostly the fact that my right shoulder is just absolutely destroyed. And so I cannot shoot with my right arm without severe pain. Do you feel you might even be better if your right shoulder worked well? I could potentially be better with my right side because my um, reaction time is way better. Like, all, like I write with my right hand, because reaction time is kind of helpful with rapid portion of sport pistol, and so, yeah, there is that potential. Tell me about technology as we kind of wrap up our interview today. How do you use technology? I've got to believe now that there's ultra slow motion video available. I briefly asked you about heart rate and breathing and all of those different things when we first met Soraya. How does technology come into play? Yeah, so we have a thing called the scat machine. An important aspect of shooting is having a consistent hold. And so the machine, it has like a receiver that like attaches to your gun and so it tracks your hold as you drop into position. That's really helpful and that is a tool that Eric uses to like help coach us as well. And then for my undergrad, my senior design project was a grip sensor because that's not really a thing. And so I created these three sleeves that would be on your, not your thumb and your trigger finger, but on the other three fingers. And so it had a sensor on each of your pads of your fingers. What data is it giving you? It would detect changes in pressure. And so if you had a significant change in pressure on one of the like sensors, it would show that. that. So the idea is from when you start pulling the trigger till it fires, your grip pressure should be consistent. And there, up to this time, there was no way to measure that until she invented that. Tell me about the next year or two relative to shooting. 
Soraya, what's on your plate? So I plan on going to part three of the Olympic trials. It's a three-part um, process. We have collegiate nationals coming up, and we also have, well, the first we have the qualifying match for nationals, uh, which is next weekend, actually, in Ohio State. We'll be here. Um, and then in March is when nationals is and then we have USA nationals I'll probably go to that as well most likely in July I'll be moving my shooting will change a lot and I'm not entirely sure what it'll look like wherever I move I applied to six different schools for my PhD we'll see where it goes uh, I hope to go to uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston but I haven't heard yet you're in the Olympic qualifying process now but is it somewhat likely that you potentially could be on the Paris team or is your vision maybe down the road a little bit uh, definitely down the road, and the reason, even though I might not, I'm probably not going to this Olympics, is it's still really good to compete and to just have that experience at competing at a high level. So I might not make this one, but it helps me prepare for the next one. And Coach, before we let you go, what are your goals for the next year or two or three for the NDSU shooting program? Well, I, I want to grow it a little bit. I want to be able to, with this Ranger, they've expanded it a little bit. We're going to be able to hold bigger matches and things. I just always want to, uh, you know, help the shooters realize their dreams. And that's, that's always my goal. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a successful program and we want to make it better and better. What would you tell a high school student or even a middle school student on why they should take up shooting? You know, shooting is one of the few sports nobody sits on the bench. Everybody competes. Big, little, short, tall, it doesn't make any difference. You can do well, and it's just a great rewarding sport. Sarai will say how our team is like a family, and, and through the years, previous shooters, they become best friends. They've been best friends for years. That's the great thing about this sport. After our interview, I asked Sarai if she would take me to the range and show me how she shoots. Just a warning to our listeners, there are some loud sounds in this portion of our interview. I began by asking Soraya how she prepares for competition. Um, I use box breathing, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. So I usually do that with my eyes closed, and then I also practice like visualization in preparation for shooting, and so I have a very specific process that I follow when I shoot. And so when I come here, when other people are here, I try to get as far away from other people as I can, because this is a range that you can shoot a lot bigger calipers than a 22, and it's loud. If you eat different foods you might have like your hands might swell up differently also just like food has an impact on how you feel so i actually track everything that i eat over the last year and a half i've lost 35 pounds because along with that i've been weight training been doing a lot of like lifting and strengthening my arms but also i, I feel better but so these little tables um so you saw how we there were benches up here before you can't use the benches because you need to go down to your 45 so most people are definitely not tall enough to be at a 45 and still be standing at the table. So that's why we use these little side tables because then you can have it at whatever height you want to place your gun and then you can just stand on the side of it and be able to bring it down. So this is my shooting case. Most people have one that's a lot smaller than this because most people put their guns in here just in the foam out. I leave all my stuff together. So like this is a gun case, that's a gun case, my shoes. So they have a completely flat bottom. For pistol, you can't have anything coming up against your ankle. So I couldn't shoot in these because it comes past my ankle. The target is uh, 55 inches at center. So this is my journal that I track all my stuff in. So I'll have like scores and then I'll have little notes about like whether it was like on call or not on call or like I should have aborted that shot or whether or not like I might have been like focused or not, or when I shoot with my phone timer, I'll be like, okay, I think that might've been late. Like I can, cause I can still see the shot on the thing, but I'm like, I, that might've been late. Yeah. And I used to also stand, like have a pretty wide stance, but I've, I now shoot like this. Yeah, so when you stand more perpendicular, because like the whole thing is you want to rely on your bones. You don't want to rely on your muscle. So that's kind of why I transitioned from here for your arm muscles. You use different muscles to be here versus here. Uh, it's also easier to be more consistent if you just line up straight, because you can just be straight with the wall. So these are my glasses that I use. They look really funky, so you can like extend the ear pieces. You can change how far apart these are. You can either have like the full black. If you even like, if you just stick out your arm and have both eyes open and try to look at the target and then close one, your hand will be in a different spot. Yeah. Yes, because you don't want to try to close one eye like physically, it's because that's really straining on both eyes. So you want it occluded, but you don't want to strain that eye, which is why I like this one versus this one is because you still want light to go to the other eye because not having light to the other eye, you can have whatever you want correction in this lens. 
So now I have two and a half minutes to shoot, and I need to move my stick. I'll probably take another shot before I move my sights again. That was NDSU graduate student and aspiring shooter Soraya Nevin and her coach, Eric Pepke. The team competes against Ohio State this weekend at the Red River Marksmanship Center here in Fargo. Still to come on Main Street, robots and humans. Are they a mirror or a role model? We'd like to thank the North Dakota Council on the Arts for supporting arts programming along with our members and other sources here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and once a month we have a philosopher, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, join us to give a little philosophical take on something that's on our minds or is in the news a lot. And boy, you can hardly click on any news source or watch or read any news source without seeing some story about AI or robots. And it seems like there's always two camps. The early adopters who think it's going to only improve our lives and then the people who are really scared and can only see the destruction of all of humanity. And so we're wondering, is there maybe a middle ground or, or how best to access that middle ground? So joining me now is Chester Fritz, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Ashley. It's always great to be here. And this is a super interesting topic because this fear of new technology is pretty much as old as humankind. Plato has a dialogue in which he's afraid of writing, where he thinks that once kids start writing, they're going to lose their memory. They're mm. going to lose the ability to do things. And the text becomes independent of the author. So we can claim that it means anything that we want it to mean as opposed to... Uh, <laughs> well, that has and, happened. <laughs> that's right. I mean, I mean, we decide what the Constitution means on a pretty regular basis, <laughs> even though those people weren't... They, they couldn't possibly have thought the way that we are right now. Plato was not dumb. <laughs> he might have been wrong, but he was not dumb. Well, okay, that's fair. Um, well, I actually just grabbed two stories at random uh, this morning, and one was on how AI could be drastically reducing food waste, particularly in grocery stores, uh, helping them either position things that are going to go bad more quickly or ways to alert the consumer that, you know, here's a sale. And then uh, further down the article, it was, hey, if you don't know what you're looking for uh, and you don't want to wander around this mega store, like, just press the app and a light will come on on the aisle where that is. And I don't know how they can possibly narrow that down <laughs> to just that individual shopper. But then the second article was about the cult of AI and this particular writer very concerned about uh, voice cloning and making a digital twin that you don't even have to interact with the apps that you have. You can have a machine order a pizza for you by just saying whatever is the most popular pizza going out right now, I want that one. Uh, and very concerned that we just don't interact as a human. We don't even think about what we want to eat <laughs> anymore. So uh, give us your first impression on just those two articles that coincidentally were both about food, come to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, maybe you should uh, take a pause and have a snack. Uh, <laughs> They seem similar when I think they're not, because one is about how computers can assist in our decision making and make life more efficient. Right? Uh, where are the cookies? Where are the chips? Yeah. Uh, help me find them so I don't waste my time. Sure. But the other is about predicting human decision making in and of itself. How do we take people out of the process or at minimum move people to where we think they should be? And mm. those are very, very different things because one makes the 
app or what have you, the grocery store app, a tool at our disposal. But the other makes us interact with an intelligence, an artificial intelligence, but an intelligence that now we are in the position of saying, are we going to agree with them? Are we going to consent to what they're doing? Are we going to give in to them? Yeah. And those are very different experiences. What does it mean, Jack, that I got a robot vacuum for the holidays and I have said thank you when it's done cleaning or I have moved out of its way and said, excuse me, just out of habit <laughs> of just saying, oh, excuse me, something's there. Um, but also, you know, if, if my husband swept, I'm not so sure I would say thank you. I feel like I would say, yeah, you live here, too. This is, you know, uh, Why am I being nicer to this robot? Well, you know, I, I, I not to cast aspersions on anyone, but maybe the robot is cuter. <laughs> I don't, oh, no. I don't know. Um, uh, I think that there's a couple different things going on there. The first is the robot plays the role of a pet. It's small. Mm. It's non-threatening. Uh, you imbue it with the personality that you impose on it, whereas your husband is your husband and he's his own person and he has his own assertions and he's you can also non-threatening um, <laughs> he's also non-threatening well but he, but no but, i know what you mean but I, I i i actually want to double down on that a second because your husband is incredibly threatening not because he's a dangerous person or anything like that but because he is so important to you mm. that if he rejected That's you fair. or criticized you it could cut you to the core that's fair. And Something happened this weekend that I, first of all, got very, very mad at. And it wasn't something he did, but something that he was involved in because of a friend. And then sitting on it a day or two later, I sort of went, I actually realized how much I would fight for this marriage. <laughs> the thing about the robot and the thing about why we talk to our cars and love things with faces yeah. and things like that is that those are one way relationships mm. we give, but we don't expect to get back. And, and what we imagine we're getting back are entirely on our own terms. Whereas human relationships are two ways at minimum. They could be many, many different ways. And we don't have control over what we receive, how we interpret it. We don't have control over how they interpret what we give. And mm. often we don't even have control over what we give because we are people with a subconscious and we often think we're doing one thing when we're doing another. You don't have to worry about their feelings. You only have to worry about do they serve what the purpose that you want. And so being friendly with them, mm. talking to them, apologizing, that's anthropomorphizing something. And that's more about being completely kind to something that you have no investment in. Anthropomorphizing that, you know, I feel like I can tell what my cat is feeling, for example, or the ability to see, make that feeling connection. They're using robots to teach empathy and, and things like this. If we can see ourselves in animals and in robots or, or maybe in art, shouldn't the extreme other end of this be that we should never be able to cause harm to another actual human? If I'm willing to look at a robot and see myself, shouldn't I look at another human and also just only see myself? So make sure I answer that question because I have to take a little tangent that I think will help illustrate this. Okay. The fundamental difference between dogs and cats are that dogs co-evolved with human beings and cats didn't. We didn't domesticate dogs. Dogs domesticated themselves. They would hunt by running after and stabbing large animals that would take miles and miles and miles to die. And so we would leave a trail of meat and blood and gore and wolves and other dog-like creatures would follow and then learned that the closer they got to human beings, the more access they had to food. And eventually they wormed their way into human beings. We wouldn't have had agriculture if we didn't have dogs. Uh, we wouldn't have moved forward if we didn't have dogs. And so what dogs did, us by breeding them and them by living uh, together, was learn how to be a dog by learning how to interact with a human being. 
Hmm. So dogs are designed not only to read our emotions, but to communicate their emotions. Cats were never particularly domesticated. All the cats that exist now can be genetically reduced to a group of something like a dozen cats in a barn in Egypt several thousand years ago. Uh, and so cats don't have the same relationship with human beings, which is why cats come off as such jerks <laughs> and I dogs just do not agree. <laughs> I, I see this as cats have much better boundaries um, well, and, and they're not sitting there doing humans bidding because they're smarter. <laughs> well, the, the, there is a conversation to be had as, 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 as to whether or not it's, it's smart or, or dumb to be the person in charge. <laughs> but well, I think you're, the, we agree on the point that the cats are in charge and the dogs are subservient. Yeah. And that's the co-evolution. And so I think that part of what's happening here is that we are trying to develop a pet relationship or a hmm. interpersonal relationship with something that has no evolution and no history with us. And so we can force ourselves on them and our visions of them in a way that we couldn't with any other creature. I don't know. We make uh, kids apologize when we know they don't mean it. Well, but we make kids apologize in order to teach them to apologize. There's a long-term goal, right? We're not doing it to win, or at least the decent parents aren't doing it to win, <laughs> right? We're, we're doing it because we want them to grow up to be the kind of people who apologize when they've done something wrong. Which is what we've decided is right or wrong. We are, we are in the danger of going down a very okay, deep hole. Okay, okay, okay. Be, because, of course... What is right and wrong is to a certain extent cultural and to a certain extent even individual, but there are touch points, and I would argue certainly that there are universal touch points. And this goes back to the other question that I promised I would answer, which is empathy and why wouldn't we, uh, why, why wouldn't we stop hurting someone? Yeah. And the answer is that what we are teaching our kids to do is empathize with other people. There's a fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that human beings are discrete individuals. We are physically separate. And everything that goes on that other people do, we have to imagine, we have to perceive, we have to interpret. So we can't be in someone else's mind. We have to make our best guess. And what empathy is, is the process of learning how to read another person's mind in order to give them the communication, the emotion, the support that they need. And mm. what growing older is, is becoming more familiar with more people and more cultures and more experiences so that you can create this imagination better. I'm going to tell a, a, a really horrible story. I'll tell it very, very quickly, but I apologize for it. When I was in uh, my early 20s in Albany, New York, I was hanging out in a friend's apartment and we heard noises uh, in the hallway and we went out and we found a woman who had just been raped. Mm -hmm. And she was crying in the hallway and, and saying, you know, to herself, what have I done? What, what did I do to deserve this? What, you know, blah, blah, blah. I looked into her eyes and I saw the pain in her eyes. And since then, not only can I not imagine myself doing that, but I can't watch Game of Thrones I can't rewatch Pulp Fiction. I can't watch anything with sexual violence because all I see is the pain and horror in that woman's eyes. And what empathy is trying to do is give you that connection with human beings using their behavior, using their, their the, listening to them, watching their language, all of this sort of stuff. And when we get so empathetic that we develop an intimate relationship with someone, an emotionally intimate relationship with someone, then the only time we hurt them is either when we lose control of ourselves or when we don't know that we're hurting them. You don't intentionally hurt people you really love, unless you're profoundly broken. Hmm. You hurt people by accident or you hurt people you don't care about. Then uh, that also could go down a long line because I can think of a, a couple objections in, in my head. But, but the main point being what empathy is, is the ability to understand what a person wants or needs and respond in kind while showing them respect as an individual. And 
in terms of robots, in terms of vacuums, in terms of androids, in terms of R2-D2 and C-3PO, these are things that we largely project onto them, right? For those who aren't Star Wars fans, R2-D2 is the short one that beeps and we don't know what he says. And C-3PO is the tall one who speaks and we do know what he says. And we have much more intimate, loving connection mm. with R2, even though R2 can be a jerk sometimes, because we don't know what he's saying, because we can impose tone and imagination and, 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 and our feelings on this, this thing. So how the, the fact that the robot vacuum doesn't have a face allows you to put your imagination on that robot vacuum in a way that you wouldn't be able to put on on a robot that looked so human that it was the uncanny valley, so human that you couldn't tell the difference. You would not, I guarantee, if you had a robot like that, you would not treat that robot like a pet the way that you would your robot vacuum. And actually, the movie AI, the, the Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg movie AI, is really about this. And I think it's a wonderful example of, of how this works. You know, on the other side of this me thanking the robot and maybe not thanking my husband for doing the same task, the opposite of this is, is potentially true, too, where we appreciate when the AI is doing something that we get annoyed that a human can do. And I'll, I'll use my situation as another example here, which is if I know my husband is coming home from work and he's going to be passing right by the certain store where we get our cat food and I say, hey, can you stop and go and get cat food? He gets really annoyed. But then the other day I told him, did you know that if you set your phone to say, hey, next time I'm by this place, remind me to get cat food? And he thought it was an incredible tool. <laughs> I think there are a couple things going on. I think the first thing is lots of people love gadgets. I certainly do. And so for your husband, there may be just an element of the phone does something cool he didn't know and he's really excited. Mm -hmm. But when the phone reminds him to do something, the phone is not expressing disappointment. <laughs> mm -hmm. When you call and say, hey, don't forget to do something, it can be easily read, even if it's not what intended are you as... Forget? Right. Exactly right. Right. Mm. I wasn't I wasn't going to forget. So. Again, this is about the reciprocal relationship of empathy, because he's reading into you intentions that you may or may not have. And he's reacting to those intentions that you may or may not have. And that's the the, the side of empathy that we don't often talk about, which is because we share this imaginative connection with people and because we think we know what they're they're saying and believing we often react to what we've decided they're thinking and doing yeah. rather than what they're actually doing yeah. I, I i know some folks who are in a marriage and, and one of the complaints that one of the, the the folks always say is is my spouse always engages in the imaginative version of me Right. They don't they don't <laughs> listen to what I say. They don't do what I say. They only Who isn't guilty do, of that. Is, <laughs> well, right. And that's because we are empathetic creatures and we forget how often we get empathy wrong mm. and we forget how essential empathy is in our intimacy. And so that leads to this core problem, which is intimacy is often built on mistakes Intimacy is often built on miscommunication and misinterpretation. And then the more elaborate the level of empathy is and the more complex the relationship is, the more cutting that mistake can end up being. Right. I, I through through the last five, seven minutes in my head, I, I've been saying to myself, before you're done with the conversation, make sure to tell Ashley that she needs to thank Zach more often because she's not doing a good job. <laughs> you know? Well, and I have started doing that because I realized why am I so willing to thank this robot and, and so not willing? And it's it's so easy to do. Um, it, it's, and and it's I do, so I, in a weird way, I do feel like it has improved <laughs> our marriage. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, <laughs> which was good to begin improved. with, but... <laughs> We can look at everything we do as a metaphor for our relationships. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But often when we see patterns, we can look at those patterns and ask, how do they represent our habits, our beliefs, our attitudes? 
philosophy does that really well. Psychology does that really well. But we as individuals in our own relationships, we're very, very resistant to that because it makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to our mistakes, to, to, to the realization that we're hurting someone when we don't want to hurt someone, that we aren't the people who we think we are, or even worse, the people who we think we should be. And mm -hmm. that's why I think all people need counseling and often couples need couple counseling. And I think that this is why, this is why everyone needs a philosopher in their life, right? <laughs> I think, I think that, that what your relationship with your robot vacuum tells you is that when you have no investment, you can be sweet and play the game with yourself that you can enjoy the idea of having a pet and be silly with it and all that kind of stuff. But when you have a real relationship with a real person that's, that's real, has real consequences, then you fall back like all of us do into, into unthinking habits that get built into the, the structure of the day and rethinking those are very, very hard. And, and I, do believe that one of the things that isn't getting enough attention in the media is the question of how our growing relationship with robots will change our relationship with human beings. And in particular, what can our relationship with robots teach us about our relationship with human beings? Everyone's so worried about, as you started the discussion uh, with, everyone's so worried about the robot overlords or AI taking decision-making away from us or anything like that, that people aren't really asking to what extent human relationships are going to be altered by the presence of these other things. Yeah. And I think that that's a really rich thread to pull. Jack, in listening to this and noticing how much I was acting in a place of defending myself, even if it was harming my husband, and I'm thinking about using these robots to increase efficiency and, and using tools and building empathy, but maybe not passing on the things like being threatened and um, being judgmental. Is it possible we could look at robots as as a, not a mirror, but as potential for how to be better humans? I think that a lot of our interactions with robots and a lot of science fiction in particular are divided by two different perspectives. Robot as slave versus robot as role model. Hmm. Also, also alien as slave and alien as role model or other group of people as slave, other group of people as, as role model. That's the fundamental divide. Are we creating creatures that will do our bidding, that won't be in pain because they have to work on the crops all day or can work in the hmm. mines without getting black lung? Uh, are we creating creatures that can do the horrible things without suffering? Sure. That's one model. But there's another model, which is, is what we're doing really building a better intelligence and with better intelligence becomes better judgment and with better judgment becomes comes a better person as a whole. And then can we look towards those robots as guidance for human beings that is on the table? It's probably not one or the other. There's probably also a third ground, which is uh, a, a, a robot that we regard as equal mm. in some sense. I think what you're asking here is the question on the table, which is, is our future a future of useful tools or is our future a future where our very human experience will ultimately be bent by, altered by, and hopefully bettered by these new creatures that have artificial intelligence because the great nightmare, and I know we're running out of time, but the great nightmare is not artificial intelligence. The great nightmare is artificial intelligence becoming real intelligence because then we are dealing with creatures at minimum who are as equally quote unquote human as we are. And then all of the rules change. Yeah. Cause they don't need to stop and take a snack. Or go to bed. <laughs> That's right. We check in with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein once a month for Philosophical Currents. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Ashley. 
Palestinian journalists have become Gaza's window to the world, documenting the destruction, the killings, despite the danger. 22-year-old Plesti al akad is one of them. I don't want the world to see us as numbers only. No, I want them to know us, to know how we're feeling. Alaka talks about her reporting and the future she wants to see on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. This is Dakota Datebook for January 30th. Winter in North Dakota has a history of some great experiences and traditions. During the month of January, Dakota Daybook has celebrated winter in conjunction with the Northern Plains National Heritage Area and the Sons of Norway Sverdrup Lodge as part of the inaugural Winterfest, a celebration of all things winter. Today's topic, skiing. In 1841, after a Norwegian immigrant in Wisconsin used skis, folks wondered what kind of creature left those strange parallel markings in the snow. Many Scandinavian skiing enthusiasts brought their knowledge and passion for skiing as they settled in North Dakota. Some of these were renowned in the skiing world, such as Sondre Norheim, the father of modern skiing, who settled in McHenry County, and later Kasper Oyman, who settled in Minot and would become an Olympic skier. Ski jumping was part of the experience for many, even in relatively flat North Dakota. Some found slopes to use, others built ski jumps. In 1920, the Washburn leader commented that, quote, it is not difficult to construct a ski jump high enough to interest beginners. And by the use of even a small one, a foundation and training would be laid that might prove of value later. Newspaper records indicate that residents of Devil's Lake were enjoying ski jumping, quote, as early as 1903. In 1907, Hans Radal from Wolf Butte in Adams County, quote, went up in one of those hills and took a flying trip down, unquote, making a jump of 40 feet. In 1916, a committee operating on behalf of a ski club in Grand Forks sought to improve and enlarge a ski jump and slide in Lincoln Park. News from Surrey in 1917 noted that Bonnie Reif was among those who went to Minot to enjoy the ski jump. In 1922, the Emmons County record boasted that Miss Kay Henneman made the greatest ski jump of the season. That same year, residents in Washburn built a ski jump on the western slopes of Turtle Creek Valley, donned stocking caps and skis, and went coasting. In 1932, Bismarck and Devil's Lake both had plans to build ski jumps. There was some danger to ski jumping, news of which also hit the papers. But there was still excitement. In 1907, there was even a report that ski jumping was adapted into a sideshow by the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Today's Dakota Datebook, written by Sarah Walker. I'm Bill Thomas, filling in for Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. That's it for this Tuesday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, we introduce you to our new director of radio right here at Prairie Public. And we also have a Prairie Plates episode with Rick Guion. It's the first day of our short and sweet member drive. It's all about chocolate. That's tomorrow. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.